Thank you, TJ. Well, church, that was almost a dancing song, eh? <laughs> On the cusp of just, Lord, hold me back. <laughs> Happy Canada Day. Pastor Kelvin, you do not look like a flag. <laughs> we love you, buddy. Church, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 19. We're going to be in verses 16 through 42 this morning as we look at the cross of Christ, the crucifixion. The title of the sermon this morning is titled, Jesus Lifted Up. I want to begin with a little narrative before we jump into God's Word. Listen, as the sun reached its zenith, the crowds gathered in Jerusalem streets grew restless. Among them stood Jesus, a figure of both love and controversy. He'd been sentenced to death by crucifixion. Now the weight of the cross bore down upon his bruised and weary body. The soldiers, indifferent to his suffering, forced a man named Simon of Cyrene to help carry the cross that day. They led Jesus through the winding path with onlookers lining the way, some mourning, some hurling insults. At Golgotha, the place of the skull, they prepared the crucifixion. With nails in hand, they stretched Jesus' arms outstretched upon the crossbeam, driving the cruel iron through his palms and feet. The cross was raised high, exposing Jesus to the merciless gaze of the crowd. And as he hung there, his mother Mary and a few close disciples wept, their hearts heavy with grief. One of the soldiers following orders took a spear and pierced Jesus' side, confirming his death. In the distance, storm clouds gathered as if the very heavens wept for the loss of this innocent man. As evening approached, a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea approached Pilate, seeking permission to bury Jesus. Pilate granted his request, and Joseph, accompanied by another prominent figure named Nicodemus, carefully took Jesus down from the cross. They tenderly wrapped his lifeless body in clean linen, anointing it with a mixture of myrrh and aloe. And they carried him to a nearby garden where a new tomb had been hewed out of the rock. Rolling a large stone in front of the entrance, they laid Jesus inside and left grief-stricken, but filled with reverence. What was to come? The story of Jesus' crucifixion in John 19, where we will camp out this morning, captures the profound sacrifice and sorrow of the Messiah that we call Lord. But it also hints at the hope of resurrection that would come later. The crucifixion stands as a testament to Jesus' love for humanity and the redemption he offered through the ultimate sacrifice. With your Bibles open, let's turn to John 19, starting verse 16, going through 42. I want to read the actual text. And today we will look at three impacts of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on our lives as believers. The first one being the sacrificial love of Christ, which is found in verses 16 through 30. Number two, the second impact, the completion of God's plan, 31 through 37, and the response of discipleship. Let us read the text together. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on each side. Jesus was in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign for the for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priest of the Jew protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them. With the undergarment remaining, the, the garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened so that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what 
the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing all that had been completed, and so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he had been already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. We've heard that sentence before. These things happen so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And another scripture says, they will look upon the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came to take the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man earlier who visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking, taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance to the Jewish burial customs at the place where Jesus was crucified. There was a garden and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby, they, lead, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of God. May I add a blessing to the reading of it this morning. The first thing I want to look at this morning as we look at the crucifixion is the sacrificial love of Christ. In John 19, 16 through 30, the first part of it, we witness the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who willingly laid down his life for our sins. We've been singing about it this morning. We testify about it every week. But as we have made our way through the gospel of John, this is the climax of the gospel. Pastor Rick has been teaching us over this series a, 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 an important verse for us to memorize. John 20, 31 says, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and believing that you may have life in his name. But if we were to take a slow walk through that text, just even in the first part, we would look and see that these things are written. When we think of the crucifixion, it is included with a specific reason. The four gospel writers include it, and it has a profound significance before the people of that day and for us here today. And as the scene opens, Jesus is handed over to be crucified. He's, be he's bleeding profusely. And at this moment, with Jesus here, he is nearly in shock. He's under Roman guard, and he's made to bear the weight of the cross to the site of death. Now, in my study, I've learned a few things about bearing the cross. The vertical beam of the cross, the staticulum, was usually kept at the site where the cru crucifixion would take place. So at, at, at Golgotha, there would be a vertical beam. The vertical beam would be between six and eight feet. There will be a picture that will come up on the screen. And the vertical beam would weigh between 300 and 350 pounds of solid wood, the staticulum. They would often make the, the, the victim carry something called the patabellum, which would be the cross beam. The beam was then placed over the neck just like a yoke, and while the person's hands were pulled back, they were placed behind the beam. Now, there is a debate whether Jesus carried the full cross, which would have been 350 pounds plus, or that he just carried the weight of the beam, which would have been between 75 pounds and 90 pounds. 
Keep in mind, Jesus was already severely beaten at this time. He'd lost a ton of blood and would have been very weak. Even if it was just only the parabellum, patabellum, it would have been between 70 and 90 pounds. In his condition, this would have been an incredible struggle. Earlier in Jesus' teaching ministry, Jesus shared a verse. He calls his disciples together in Matthew eleven twenty eight. We find this verse and Jesus shares to them. He says, come to me, all of you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. At this moment in this scene, Jesus is physically carrying the cross. He is physically carrying an intense burden. And as I was studying, uh, this thought came across my mind. As I was looking at the text and thinking about Jesus, I wonder if he thought about that teaching that day, which was recorded in Matthew. Come to me, all of you who are heavy, burdened. Because he knew that day would come, that he would take the full weight of sin. Jesus offers to us to take off the burden so that we can move forward in the Father's plans. As Jesus struggled that day, assistance was needed. Just like Simon was called in to help Jesus carry the cross, an important lesson is found in that transaction. Hardship is not an excuse for us to give up on the mission. The writer John and the audience watching the events unfolding that day would have understood the process of crucifixion very well. John writes in the gospel that Jesus, being so weak, could not carry the beam and pulls in a bystander, Simon, to help assist the beaten and bruised Savior as he struggles to stand and step forward to his death. They were made to walk. It was like a walk of shame. I personally walked the path of the cross when I was in Israel. It was a part of the tour that day when we got up. We found ourselves outside the walls and we were actually walking through and I was noticing these little inscriptions on the walls and I look over and I didn't even know that was part of the day. It's called the Via Della Rosa. And the, our guide that day was kind of telling us, well, these are, this is some of the path that Jesus walked on the day that he carried the cross to the place where he was crucified. Later on in that day, we got some free time. We could go back and go shopping. I spent my free time tracing the, the steps of Jesus. I took my time that day walking through, reading all the inscriptions that were on the walls, counting the steps and how far it would be for Jesus thinking that day, where would Jesus have, a, would have, have kneeled down under the weight of the cross? Where would Simon would have been called in to help? How would they have pulled the cross? Did they both carry it together? Did Simon take the brunt of the force? Did he help Jesus up as he, as he took steps towards the cross, leaving a trail of blood? And that evening with Pastor Rick, I got a, 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 a little Nicodemus moment at night. I got to go with my pastor, and we walked it again. And, I, and my heart was just heavy. What was it like that day as Jesus was going to the cross, knowing of the great sacrifice? Public, execu public execution took place outside the walls, as it was in, in a custom to the word of God, and were designed in such a way that it would shake the onlookers to what would happen to criminals if they mess with Rome. But no doubt, as we read John's account, he is communicating a different message to the people. Jesus is being lifted up now. And on the highways of Jerusalem, Israel will see its king. The sacrificial love of Jesus will be displayed for all to see. As we look at the text, we are reminded that Jesus willfully allowed himself to be arrested in the garden tried and put up on a cross for the whole world to see. Jesus' sacrifice, sacrificial love is demonstrated to, in his willingness to endure physical and emotional pain on the cross. Jesus willingly allows his hands and his feet to be pierced, literally nailed to a beam, exposed, he is broken and he is bruised. Jesus is a place taker. But why would Jesus say yes to taking this place, this day, for you and me? The ancient Jewish historian Josephus called crucifixion the wretched of deaths. The ancient Roman philosopher Cicero 
asked that Roman citizens would not even speak of the cross because it was too disgraceful for the ears of decent people. Don't talk about this. This is not dinner table conversation. The Jews considered crucifixion, crucifixion the most horrific mode of death and the word of God in Deuteronomy 21:22 states that anyone who dies upon a cross is cursed. Why would Jesus take this place? As I was studying, I learned that the pain of crucifixion is so horrendous that a word was invented to explain it. That word is excruciating. When you translate the word excruciating, it actually means or translates from the cross. And on this day, Jesus was crucified between two criminals. Jesus, the King of Jews, was lifted up. The historical evidence of the crucifixion of Jesus of Nerodus leads us to ask this one important question, one question that we need to know the answer of here this morning. Why is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ good news? To answer that question, one must move from a historical evidence because history shows that the crucifixion of Jesus is real. It is accounted. Lots of people believe that. There is historical evidence of the crucifixion. But let's look at the implications through the lens of theology. To answer the question, one must move from a historical evidence of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ to the theological meaning of the fact. And I believe that when we open up God's word, the apostle Paul gives the most brief and clear summary of the good news of Jesus Christ for us here today in his letter to the Corinthians. And in Corinthians 1, chapter 15, verses three and four, Paul shares this. For what I receive, I pass on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised from the dead. This packed section of scripture we know, we teach this to each other, we teach it to our children. But this packed section of scripture contains the reason why the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is good news. This horrendous death, this act of great violence that took place is good news for us here today. One writer points out that Paul appoints the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the most important event in all of history, and with it, it verifies the truthfulness of all scripture, even from a historical standpoint, it verifies scripture. Paul explains why this is good news simply with the word for, showing Jesus died for our sins. The word for, hooper in Greek, can either mean two ways, for the benefit of or because of. Jesus did not die for the benefit of our sins, but rather, Jesus died because of our sins, the trespasses that we commit against an all-holy God. We all sin. Some of us have come in here today with the consequences of sin looming. Some of us sinned on the way to church today. We all sin. We are all in need of a savior. Why is the crucifixion good news? Well, we learn from the beginning of scripture in Genesis 3.23, the pro-evangelium, to the end of scripture, Revelations 21, that sin has a cost. Sin needs to be paid for. Romans teaches us that the wages of sin is death, and without the shedding of blood, there will be no forgiveness of sin. The penalty for sin against an all-holy God is death. Therefore, all who have sinned should receive death as a punishment for their personal sin, but here we see Jesus takes the place of our sin. The Word of God teaches us that the sinless one becomes sin. The one who knew no sin takes the place of the person who is guilty of sin. We call this the great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21, this day as Jesus held onto the cross beam and made his way through the streets, he took, he took steps towards Calvary for you and me. As he was nailed to the cross, he was pierced for our transgressions. 
as he was lifted up for all to see with a sign displaying king of the Jews. He was lifted up as the final sacrifice about to take on the full wrath of God, making the final and only way for reconciliation between sinful man and woman and an all-holy God. It is important for us today to remind ourselves as believers of the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ and that the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ was on display that day and very soon Jesus would take his final breath forever changing history, forever changing the way that man would interact with God. No more religious system would be needed. God would make his dwelling place within his people. Did you know this morning as we sing praises to our holy God that the word of God testifies, the word of God is true, and the word of God says that God dwells within the praises of his people. We can be assured this morning that God is with us here today, right now, in this moment, as God's people are gathered. We can be assured that the Holy Spirit is moving in our hearts. We can be assured because of the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ that we can go to the cross of Christ as we were singing in our last song and lay our addictions down and lay our sins down and lay the things that are so heavy in our life at the foot of the cross. The sacrificial love of Jesus is good news to all who believe. Amen, church? Is it true for us? Is it true for you today? We need to keep reminding ourselves about the sacrificial love of God. Everywhere we go, every time we meet, God is good, amen? The second impact of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and why it is good news for us and why we can rejoice today, it's because the completion of God's plan. In verse 36, we read that the scriptures were fulfilled. As we move through our text, we see that in this next section, the completion of God's plan. A summary of these, this section points out that Jesus did die, 1933. His legs were not broken, fulfilling the prophecy found in Psalm 34, 20. A soldier does pierce his side and blood and water flow out. And there was actually eyewitness testimony that, that testifies that Jesus was truly dead and the, that the completion of God's plan has taken place. Some, like those in the Muslim faith, believe that Jesus did not die, he was just taken up to heaven. But the Bible clearly states with eyewitness testimony that Jesus is dead. And that scripture is fulfilled. And this marks the completion of God's plan. And for some of us who may be new to church, maybe this is your first time, maybe you haven't read the Bible, maybe you haven't heard this series, maybe you've just been sleeping every Sunday as you come in. You might have forgot what Jesus' plan is, what his mission is. What is the completion? What is the plan that is now completed? Let me just remind you very quickly. If we refer back to the seven I statements, I am statements that we have taught about over this series, you can go back and check them out. It's a very good sermon series. It's on our website, but we've covered all seven. They point to the plan that has now been completed. John 6, 35 is where it begins. Jesus states, I am the bread of life. And in this moment, Jesus declares himself to be the sustainer of our spiritual lives. Often we try to do life on our own and kind of add Jesus in. But Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. I am the sustainer of our spiritual lives. We both have a physical life and a spiritual life. As we eat regular food or food, physical food, it nourishes our physical body, but we need to make sure and understand that as believers, we need to know and understand that our spiritual lives also need to be nourished, and that only comes from Jesus. Just as bread nourishes our physical body, he satisfies our spiritual hunger and gives us eternal life. By the time we come in here on a Sunday morning, we need to be hungry, church, for the word of God. We pour ourselves out like a Drake offering, trusting in the Lord all week, and by the time we get back in here, we sit under the teaching of God's holy word, and it fills us up, it sustains us, it gives us life, it gives us excitement, it gives us zeal to go out and live for God. 
He is the one who provides true fulfillment. He is the one that gives us purpose, meaning, and he is the one who sustains us as we walk the journey of faith. And the journey of faith is not easy. John 8, 12 says, I am the light of the world, Jesus proclaiming himself as the source of spiritual illumination. In a world filled with darkness and confusion, he offers light of truth, guiding us out of the shadows of sin and leading us into the marvelous light of his love and his grace. In him, we find direction and clarity and hope. This is what we need to pray for our country continually, as Pastor Calvin led us so mightily in this morning, that the light of Jesus Christ would reach every place in Canada. In John 10, 9, he says, I am the door. Jesus portrays himself as the gateway to salvation. Salvation, Just as a door has, gives access to the house, Jesus is the entrance to the restored relationship with God. He is the only way through the, to the Father and through him. And him alone, we have forgiveness, redemption, and the invitation to enter into the eternal kingdom. In John 10, 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus liked him, himself to, care, to a caring shepherd who watches over and protects his flock. He knows each of his sheep intimately, and he's willing to lay down his life for them. Jesus leads, he guides, he nurtures, he ensures our safety and our well-being. In him, we find comfort, security, and a shepherd that will never leave us. Are you seeing the plan unfold? Look at what Jesus does. In John eleven twenty five, 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus revealed his power over death itself. He is the source of eternal life, promising that those who believe in him will never truly die. Through his own death and resurrection, he conquered the grave and offers us the hope of eternal life in him. And in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus proclaimed himself as the exclusive path to God. He is not merely a way, but the way, the only way, the ultimate truth and life giver. He is the embodiment of all truth and the one who reconciles us to the Father. In him, we find salvation, purpose, and the abundant life we have, we were created to experience. And as Pastor Steve taught us in John 15:1, Jesus declared, I am the true vine. Jesus likened himself to a vine with his followers as branches. He emphasized the importance of us as the church abiding in him. For apart from him, we can do nothing but staying connected to Jesus. We bear much fruit that bring glory to God and allow us to experience the fullness of his love and grace. These examples from the Gospel of John highlight different aspects of Jesus' mission the mission that is now complete because Jesus has given up his life. Such examples revealing God, offering eternal life, providing spiritual nourishment, being a loving shepherd, and conquering death. When we look at the scriptures and we trace back through the gospel of John, we see that Jesus is provider. He is illuminator. He is the gateway. He is protector. He is our guide. He is our overcomer. He is our life giver. He's our sustainer. And just prior to completion, as we read in our text, there's this sensitive moment. Upon the cross, knowing that the work is complete. There's been these moments with Jesus this week as I've been thinking. He's on the cross and he's going to make a statement in a minute. And he's probably going back. He, he remembers his priestly prayer. He, he remembers what he's doing with his disciples over the last three years. He knows that the mission is done. He's thinking back of the full counsel of God's word from Genesis to this moment. He knows the work is complete. He understands that scripture is, is fulfilled. And at that moment, Jesus declares, I'm thirsty. We see the humanity of Christ on the cross at that moment, he says, I am thirsty. All that God had purposed, all that the prophets had foretold was now done. And Jesus is about to surrender himself onto death, the final marker, the completion of the plan. 
knowing through Christ's substitutionary and sacrificial death on the cross, the Lamb of God paid our debts. He is about to take away our sins. He declares, I am thirsty. So they give him a drink. One last drink. And with a resounding voice, I often think God just needed that. Jesus, in the moment, just needed that, that drink to, to just get ready for what he was about to declare. Just wet his mouth. Because with a resounding voice, he wanted all the people that were witnessing as he was nailed to the cross, high and lifted up. He wanted them to hear in a strong voice, it is finished. It is finished, church. It is done. Every day when we get up, we can declare, it is finished. Those words are forever marked in history as the completion of God's plan. And at, after he declared that, the text says that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The completion of God's plan to our benefit for you and me. The gift of reconciliation is the direct implication of the completion of God's plan of salvation through the cross of Christ to our benefit, church. Paul preaches to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5.18. He says, all this, all this that we have, that all this that we testify about this morning, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, all of this is from God. He says, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Each of us, not for pastors, not deacons, each of us here who call in the name of the Lord, who have called on the name of the Lord, who have the Holy Spirit inside of us, have been given a ministry. And the ministry is the gift of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the word, world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against him. This is the good news that we have that we can share to the people in our community, to our nation. That God, because of Christ, is not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. An ambassador is one who speaks on behalf of someone else. We get the great ability to speak on behalf of someone else. And that one is Christ, as though God were making his appeal through us. Paul challenges the church that day. We, they, we implore you on Christ's behalf. I implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for you so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. To our benefit, the completion of God's plan through the cross of Calvary is God is not counting your sin against you. If you are faithful and you confess your sin, he will forgive it. God giving his people the ability to grant grace and mercy and forgiveness to others. We do not have to live in conflict with people, especially as the church. We do not live in conflict with brothers and sisters. We have been given the gift of reconciliation. We have everything in Christ to make it work. And it is our responsibility from God to make sure that we are exercising this gift and we are not holding things against brothers and sisters. Church, I tell you today, I declare it, I challenge you. If you know Jesus as Lord and you have the Holy Spirit and you are holding something against a brother or a sister, you are in sin. And there is no excuse for not dealing with it based on what this passage has declared for us today. God commissions us to preach the gospel of the cross of Christ. God made him Jesus, who had no sin at all, to actually take on my sin, my personal grievances against God. They were put on Jesus, so that in Jesus, 
I could stand before God. I could come and pray to God. I could seek God when I'm feeling overwhelmed. I can open up God's word and see the treasure. I could not be alone. You ever feel lonely in life even though you're surrounded by so many people? You're not alone when you have Jesus. You're not alone when you have the, re- the, the ministry that has been given to us called reconciliation. And when Jesus said it is finished, he declared the completion of God's plan for mankind. And this, my friends, this is good news for us. Because the cross of Christ has a purpose. And the purpose or the theology behind the cross of Christ is something called penal substitution atonement. Christ took the penalty of our sin. Christ is a place taker. And he took the most horrendous death for you and me. And when we read and study and look and hear the word of God proclaim, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ made a way for sinful man to be reconciled to a holy God. And that there is good news. And the gift of salvation is free to all who believe, but to all who believe, we are called to a better way, which leads into our last point, the way of discipleship. The third impact of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and why this is good news is the response of discipleship. When we understand the word discipleship, it means to be taking on the teaching of another. We, as followers of Jesus, we take on his teaching. Prior to Christ ascending to heaven, Jesus called his disciples together and gave them the Great Commission. When we look at the Great Commission, He stated to them, go therefore and make disciples. Disciple is one who takes on the teaching of another. So go therefore and make disciples of all nations, including Canada. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here's the the definition of discipleship. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you or teaching them to live by everything that I have taught you. What I have taught you, teach the whole world to all those who would listen. And remember that I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Jesus, make, Jesus says, make disciples, and then describes the mission. Teach them to live by the word of God. Those who have received salvation are called to respond in obedience to Christ's example. Our text shows us two disciples this morning who believed the teachings of Jesus and responded in discipleship. They responded in obedience. And the first disciple that we see from our text is Joseph of Arimathea. And as we read, Joseph had the ability to speak to Pilate. And he does so, and he asks a request for the body of Jesus. Our Our text shows us these two disciples Especially Joseph has great influence and he does not shy away from doing what is right in the moment. Even though John does include, as we read in the scriptures, that he secretly followed the teachings of Jesus. I love that inclusion. It sounds like a cop-out sometimes when you would read it, but no, not to me when I read that. John, I believe that John gave this inclusion to help teach us as disciples. And the lesson from that, I I believe, is this. A disciple is always growing. Joseph is not a rock star. He's not the rock star disciple who has all the answers. And he does everything perfect. But what what the text is showing is that he had influence and he wasn't afraid. He was afraid, but he didn't let fear impact his decision to approach Pilate and obey God. He's a disciple. He takes on the teachings of another. He walks in obedience. A disciple is always growing. The second disciple we see is Nicodemus. Remember, Jesus spoke to him at night. And they had the exchange about being born again. John includes Nicodemus as being back on the scene, but he's not asking questions now. He's taking action. Nicodemus is growing. 
he's always growing as a disciple. Nicodemus has shown up and he brought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes and together with Joseph prepares Jesus' body and they place him in the tomb. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ gives way to the response of discipleship. Because of the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ, because of the completion of God's plan of salvation, because of this good news, we can respond by dedicating our lives fully to the teachings of Christ, which is not just the words in red. The teachings of Jesus Christ is the full counsel of the Holy Scriptures because John declared in the very beginning of this book that we are studying in John 1 that the Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word. So, as followers, we believe it all. 33,000 verses. I was challenged this week. I have a Muslim friend. Every couple of weeks, I go and meet with this friend for coffee. And I was telling Krista V this week that he is very intense against me. He's very, he's very intense. Uh, he does not, I, I don't know if he hates me or loves me. <laughs> and he cuts my hair and he shaves my beard and he has a knife every week and every couple of weeks. And I'm just like, but often he tells me that Christians are a joke. Often, this is his message to me as I sit in his chair as a pastor. He tells me that Christians are a joke. He says, you say you follow your God, but the people that I know who follow Christ don't do that at all. They pick and choose. And yesterday, he, uh, on Friday, or Friday when he cut my hair, he got down real low to me and he whispered in my ear. He said, the God that I serve, I would literally die right now. Would you? He says, I don't see that in the Christian faith. You guys pick and choose what you want to do. Why is that? He challenges me. Every two weeks, I often leave. One day, my daughter came in, and we, there was like five of us, and we were arguing, and Bella was like terrified. We got in the mall, and she says, were you in trouble? I said, girl, no. I handled myself. I said, no, that's how we debate Jesus. We yell at each other, and then we hug. <laughs> because of the good news of Jesus Christ, because of the ability to respond to discipleship, we need to obey the full counsel of God's word in everything that we do. We have such a great cloud of witnesses around us, and we can easily get tangled up in our sin. And sometimes we allow sin to throw us off course and I think that's the importance of coming back to church each and every Sunday is we need to be here. We need to help each other. We get untangled. We get filled up. We go back out. We obey Jesus. We draw closer to God and the whole world sees that there is a God in heaven that is worth following. I looked at him and I said, I'm sorry that you feel that about Christians, but that's not me and that's not the people I know. That's not the people that I do life with. We love God and we are doing our very best by the help of God to obey him. So the Christians that you're hanging around with, you need better friends, bro. So I invited him to church. How are you responding to discipleship? We need to make sure we are keeping track and we are growing in Christ and that we are doing everything we can. The church was not given to keep track of its members' do's and don'ts. That's legalism. We need to take personal account before an all-holy God. The church was given to glorify God and, and for us to obey his teaching so that we know how to live in harmony and grow in holiness, which means this personal account before an all-holy God is needed each and every day. We must live what we believe in the public eye and behind closed doors. Because of the sacrifice of Christ, we can live in harmony with God and with each other he has removed the dividing wall of hostility between God and man. The gospel is powerful when it's preached and lived it. My first mission toward Washington, D.C., a guy pulled a knife on me and was going to stab me. I had a Bible in my hand. I had no clue how to work it. I didn't even know. I didn't even open it. 
I was a new Christian on the mission field. I held the Bible. He looked at me. He held the knife to me because I was in his community as a white guy. And I looked at him in the face and I said, man, before you do this, I want you to know that I have this Bible and I don't even know how to read it. But one thing I do know, that God loves those kids there and he loves you and me. And the guy just simply put his knife away. He didn't do anything. He just put his knife away and he walked away. And right there, that was the moment in my life that I learned that the power of God, that the word of God is so powerful when it is spoken. I went home, had a meeting with my wife, quit my job, went to Bible school the next week. Because of that one moment, not the knife, but the power of God's word spoken in faith, which means that there is a lot of people in here who believe in Jesus, which means there's a lot of power that can shake a community when we speak the word of God in truth and believe it. There's no reason for us to live entangled in sin anymore because of the completion of God's word. With honest hearts, we can say, we need to be declaring to each other, we are learning to grow as disciples. We do not have it all figured out, but we not, must not give up on our pursuit of doing what is right and honorable before God. We cannot throw in the towel. I hear this a lot. You make one mistake and you just, everything's gone. Your progress is not gone. You confess your sins, Jesus removes them as far as the east is from the west, and you move forward in faith, in hope, in love, in grace. This is the gospel. This is true for us. Every day, every win, they all count. And if you do sin, you have one who speaks on your behalf, an advocate with the Father. He will forgive your confessed sin. You do not need to go, lose all your progress. We just need to confess and move on. Hating sin and loving God, we can respond in discipleship. And as Pastor Rick has taught us, the verse for John. These things are true. And these things have been written so that you may believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that you may be, and by believing in him, you may have life in his name. If you do not have a personal, personal relationship with Jesus Christ, then I urge you today to ask him to be the Lord of your life. The word of God says, if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. If you're not living in response of a discipleship in every area of your life, I urge you to confess your sins and walk in holiness with your Savior. Church, the word is true and it will change your life when applied. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning, for your word and for your testimony. Thank you that your work mission is completed Thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the call of discipleship. Lord, I want to thank you for your church. You have given your church pastors and teachers and preachers and deacons and evangelists and all kinds of people. You've given us the body. You've given us the Holy Spirit. You've given us the ministry of reconciliation. You've given us salvation. You are our provider, our leader, our guide. And this morning, we can come to you. So Lord, I ask that you would call those who do not know you into salvation, into new life with you. And if anyone is here, let them know right now that you will accept them where they're at, that they can confess their sin. I am a sinner, and I am in need of Jesus to be the Lord of my life. God, forgive me of my sins. When that prayer is prayed, God, you will forgive them and invite them in, restoring them, giving them the power of the Holy Spirit to take up residency in their lives, giving them the ability to read your word and understand it, giving them a gift to be exercised in the body. God, save people here today. I also pray for us who are walking in newness of life with you each and every day. As I think about you walking to the cross, it is not easy being a Christian some days. But we do not have to give up hope. So God, I pray and ask that you would forgive us of our sins. That you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That you would restore us to right relationship with you. And as we confess our sins today, 
you and you would put joy and peace in our hearts as we move out here looking for the opportunity to preach and share your gospel. We declare today, God, it is finished, and because it is finished, we can live. I pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is good news for those who believe. Because of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, the sacrificial love of our God, the completion of God's plan, and the response to discipleship. And as we go here today, I wanted to share something real quick. It's a little book that, it's a devotion book by Joe Thorne. He's a reformer uh, in the States, uh, and it's Little Notes to Self. I like this book. And uh, as I was studying last, last week, I, I pulled up my next one, and it was this. I thought it would be nice for us to hear this. It says, Dear Self, you tend to forget that seeking God is not only a quest for the lost, but is also to characterize the life of the found. The whole of your life should be seen as a seeking for God. This is not, of course, seeking for that which you do not know or have. God has found you. He has bought you, and God owns you. You've been adopted and nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus. Yet you need to seek God never ends. Seeking God means that you are continually aiming and working at knowing him more deeply, depending on him more thoroughly, and experiencing his grace more richly. It was the psalmist that, that says that his desire is to remain pure, he wants to live uprightly and to honor God. He knows that this means he must guard his life according to God's word, but he also recognizes that this is not just an act of willpower. It is the hope of God's sustaining grace that he finds as he seeks God. Dear self, it is unfortunate that you forget your need to seek God. For though you are right that God is enough, you forget that he is only found to be enough by those who earnestly seek him. Seeking God means that, you do, that in all you do, you keep his honor in your mind, you keep his word in your heart, and his glory as your goal. So you are seeking to actually know him and make him known. The cross of Christ is good news. It is good news applied. I pray that you have a great Canada Day and your pastors will be here in the Connections Room if you would like to pray. Amen. God bless you.